Thank you, Lewis. As Lewis said, we are pausing in our study through the book of Romans to celebrate the historical outworking of the study of the book of Romans. The 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, what I'm doing this morning is primarily telling you the story of a man's life, a man who was in agony, a man whose soul had no rest, a man who was in deep pain and he didn't know where to turn to. He was in such pain that he went to extraordinary extremes in his life to find some answer to why he was hurting so badly, but there was no answer to be found in all of the sources that he was told to turn to until he turned to the Scriptures. And then everything changed. And history changed as well. Uh, When we speak about the Reformation, we are speaking about Uh, The way that many put it are five solas that are attached to the Reformation. Just mention them briefly. And all of these are in your your printed notes. But scripture alone, the Bible alone is our highest authority, not church dogma, not tradition, scripture alone. Faith alone is the second hallmark of the Reformation. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ not by anything that we can earn. Grace alone, we're saved by the grace of God. By grace, you're saved through faith. Those two are entwined. You cannot separate them. Faith and grace, and you cannot separate them from the object of faith, Christ alone. Jesus Christ is our Savior. There is no other mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And finally, to the glory of God alone, we get no credit for earning our salvation. God alone saves and he alone is to be glorified. So those are the solas of the Reformation. And uh, Lewis and I are going to be talking about these over the next three weeks. My task today is to tell you the background of the Reformation and to understand why The first sola is there. Sola Scriptura. Why the Bible is central to the Reformation. And the answer to that is also why we are Signal Mountain Bible Church. By the way, October 31st is not only the traditional date of the Reformation, it's also what holiday that we are beginning to celebrate very enthusiastically in our country. Yeah, Halloween. Um, our, our daughter, Rebecca, is in charge of preparing special goodie bags for our grandson, Elijah's uh, preschool Halloween party. Preschool. And Rebecca was trying to tie this together with the Reformation somehow and, and, the, and the 500th anniversary of uh, the Reformation. and was trying to think of something she could include in the goodie bags about Martin Luther and All Hallows' Eve and the 95 DCs and And maybe the solas. And then it suddenly dawned on her. Wait a minute. Elijah is in a Catholic preschool. Maybe that would not be. (laughs) 
appreciate it. <laughs> I'll be interested in know what she comes up with. <laughs> the, the name Halloween came from a Druid celebration that took place on November 1st, the next day. And the Catholic Church replaced that November 1st with All Saints Day, and they had a special Mass on November 1st called All Hallow Mass, where prayers were said for the dead. And that evening before October 31st was All Hallow Eve or All Hallow Evening, Een, All Halloween, where the name came from. For us, October 31st is uh, not a day of, of legends or ghosts and goblins, but it's a, it's a day of amazing history. Uh, and, and today's lesson, as I, as I said, is, today's sermon is, is really unusual because we're going to be looking at the spiritual journey of a man in agony, uh, Martin Luther. And first of all, why Martin Luther? I mean, was he the only man who grasped the gospel of salvation by grace through faith? Was he the only one? No, actually, there were many. In fact, there may have been thousands, tens. We, we just don't know how many. We know the names of a few of those who grasped the gospel, but honestly, so many people's voices were not carried over beyond the 15th century. And those who were out there were censored or, in some cases, burned at the stake. So th their voices didn't continue long enough to have the historical impact that Luther's did. But there we know of a few names of those who were involved in the Reformation. I'll just mention a few of them here. Uh, Peter Waldo in France, uh, salvation by grace through faith, 300 years before Luther. Uh, John Wycliffe in England, John Hus, uh, actually they call him Jan Hus in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Uh, he was executed in 1415, a century before Luther. There were also some contemporary reformers with Luther. Uh, Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland, William Tyndale in uh, uh, England, who was... Who was uh, strangled to death and then burned uh, at the age of 42. John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, Calvin outlived everybody. Uh, there were others still that I didn't include up here. Theodore Beza, John Knox. But Martin Luther, the one who he died in 1546, I put him at the bottom because he was, he was the main voice that became the blunt, blunt instrument. And he was a blunt instrument that God used to flan, to, to, to flan the fame, <laughs> sometimes I get my words wixed, to fan the flame of the Reformation. And he's the one who fought the biggest battles. And I'm going to begin by telling you a little bit about the century into which Martin Luther was born. At the time, the Western world was Roman Catholic and the popes were political leaders with a religious veneer. Uh, Pope Alexander VI was described as, quote, a monster of iniquity. Pope Pius II reigned for 26 days, and his circumstances around his death are somewhat questionable. Uh, Pope Julius II had no interest in spiritual matters, only in war, although he was Michelangelo's pope of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, pope Leo X was the one who was really interested in art, more so than scripture. In fact, he didn't believe the Bible. So he, he was Luther's pope who later excommunicated Luther. 
There were other leaders of the church, not just the popes. There were also the bishops. What was the condition among the bishops? Well, at that time, most of the bishops were sons of the nobility. That is, second sons who couldn't inherit the noble's title. And so the father would buy them a bishop's office, a bishopric. They would buy that office for them so that they would have a lifelong income. Uh, it, it, vows of poverty and uh, chastity were uh, ignored. Okay, the, the popes and the bishops. What about the theologians of the day? Well, they did a lot of studying, but they studied mostly Aquinas and Aristotle. They didn't study scripture. One of Luther's colleagues who had received his doctorate in theology, uh, um, had received his doctorate in theology before he ever saw a Bible, much less read it. And I've mentioned the popes, the bishops, the theologians. What about the priests? Well, since village peasants mostly could not read or write, the village priests told Bible stories if they knew them. But they were not educated in the Bible either. And then the Mass itself was recited in Latin, so the people had no understanding, had no teaching. And, and the main task that the local priests had was to extract money for the bishops. So... Meanwhile, the, the, the people are trying to earn their salvation uh, through good works, such as worshiping the saints and Mary, making pilgrimages, going to confession, and especially giving money. In fact, salvation was a commodity, a business commodity. Follow me on this. The term indulgence is something that you may remember or may have heard of. It's from the Latin term for amnesty. And the idea is that God forgives our sins, but he still purges us from our sins after we die in the flames of the purging place, purgatory. And uh, what that means is that the atonement of Christ is not sufficient to pay for your sins. Christ's work on the cross was not enough. But you can shorten your time in purgatory by what you do in this life. One way is to give money to the church, and that will shorten your time in purgatory. But that's not all. You can also buy indulgences for someone that you love to shorten their term, time in purgatory. And that's not all. I feel like I'm going to sell you some Ginsu knives here. You can even buy and apply the indulgence to somebody who is already dead. So your, your mom... You can ransom the soul of your mom out of purgatory now if you get the money now. So I, I know I'm putting a, a worst case interpretation on 15th century church. But you know what? That's what it seems like it was. There's very precious little writing that indicates anything different than that. But how, how does this work with the indulgences? Well, some people lived, here's, here's the rationale, lived such good lives that they earned extra merit that they didn't need in order to get to heaven. And the Pope has the keys to the treasury of those good works, and that treasury can be dispensed through appropriate means, which was defined then in terms of money. Now, were there sincere servants of God who lived at this time, who questioned all this, who were a part of the church? 
I'm sure there were, but we just don't know about them or precious little about them. And again, I know I'm painting a, a, a dismal picture, but it was a dismal picture. Now, let's focus away from this broad canvas onto one person, Martin Luther. November 10th, 1483, a baby boy was born to the Luther family. Uh, and his parents were very poor, and uh, they were honest people. But Martin Luther was the first of six children. He had three brothers and three sisters. Sisters. He was the oldest of the seven. Uh, and uh, he looked, he was said to look like his mother. And since he looked like former football coach John Madden, we're not sure if that was a good thing or not. <laughs> so Martin, at the age of 18 in 1501, uh, entered university and studied Latin and Greek classics. And uh, he supported himself as a singer. All his life, music he regarded as a, just a noble gift from God. And at the close of today's service, we are going to sing a German beer song to which Luther put lyrics that were later, tra later translated in, in, into English. A mighty fortress is our God. And you can just hear this. No, I'm, don't even, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to give you that image. <laughs> as we sing the song, we're going to sing it reverently <laughs> at the close of the service. So uh, we probably just thought of close the service now. <laughs> but it was, it was a German beer song. So at any rate, um, he led a very moral life, Luther. And uh, he, he was devoted to the worship of the Virgin Mary. Uh, in, at, the, at the age of 19, if you do the math, he earned his bachelor's degree. That's one year. His professors were amazed and they referred to him as as one of the wonders of the university. Uh, when he was 20 years old, he saw a Bible for the first time. He was astonished at what it what he read there. He didn't read very much of it, but he was just it seemed so like a different world uh, to him. In 1505, when he was 23, uh, he took a, a master's degree there at the university, which in those days would, would have been equivalent to our PhD today. Uh, so it was a very exalted degree. Uh, as I said, he was 23 years old at the time. But also at that time, two things happened in his life. Uh, one thing was that he, and you may be familiar with this story, he was traveling and he was caught in a very severe thunderstorm and he became so terrified and he was a man who lived in agony anyway about his soul he was so terrified that he was going to die right then and there that he prayed and he promised saint anne to whom he was praying that if he survived this he would become a monk the second thing that happened was one of his close friends died very suddenly and those two things confirmed the way that he was thinking about you know how do you how do you save your soul? Well, the only way to save your soul, the best way to save your soul is to go to the place where you can isolate yourself from the world. And that's to a monastery. And that's where he went. So the great brain, Martin Luther, went 
to the monastery for three years to learn humility. He would he would he was begging bread in the town next to it. He was sweeping the floors. He was submitting to anything that the other monks asked him to do without complaint. He fasted regularly. He was engaged in all kinds of acts of uh, self-discipline, self-mortification. And, and uh, there, he wrote about seven periods of prayer throughout the day. And during each one of those periods of prayer, each one of the seven, he would recite the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, the Paternoster, 25 times, and the uh, 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 Ave Maria, 25 times. So if you do the math, that's 25 times for each one, seven times a day. That's 175 repetitions. So he was he was held up by his superiors as being an, a, a model of piety. Luther wrote this. And by the way, when I said do the math a moment ago, I think I didn't do the math right. Is this being recorded? I'm afraid it is. Well, let's let's fast forward then. But it's a bunch of repetition. Here's the thing. Luther wrote this, quote, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. Now, after all this time, how does he. How is his soul? How is he processing his effort to save his soul? You know what the answer is? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But he didn't know the rest of the verse to know what the answer was. He was wrestling with how to attain righteousness. And one uh, wonderful friend that he had in his life the head of the Augustinian order, which, which is where he was a monk, uh, Johann von Stoppitz, became his spiritual father. And Stoppitz pointed him to the Bible. You ought to read the Bible. And, he be, and he, that began a journey for Martin Luther. So he began to study Romans, Galatians, and later on he began to study the Psalms and to teach the Psalms. And he meditated on the phrase, the righteousness of God in Romans 117. And especially how the verse 17 ends, the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? The just shall live by faith. Where do you attain the righteousness of God? And what he was doing is he was filtering it through the grid of what he had been taught all of his life through the church, which was not the right grid. He couldn't. It was a, an entirely different paradigm. Things hadn't fall, locked over and fallen down into place yet. And he was trying to process this. And he was, as he read the scripture, though, he's beginning to realize that the, the Catholic Church had it backwards from the Bible. And, and Catholicism, righteousness, is infused. It's, it's, it's um, not, we are not declared righteous, imputed righteousness. It's infused into us so that we can earn uh, so that we, we, we can gain enough faith and the ability to do enough works so that we can earn our salvation. But in the Bible, salvation is a single act of God and good works are a result, not a means of salvation. Now, here's the deal. Luther, through all of this, was, was trying to remain a good Catholic. 
He began to understand more and more, though, that there was a doctrinal chasm between the church and what he was seeing in Scripture. And that chasm was opening up in front of him. Uh, Here are some of the things that he was trying to harmonize. In the Catholic Church, the church teachings are magisterial. But when he read Scripture... The traditions of the church were to be, as he read through the book of Acts, were to be corrected by Scripture. Scripture corrects the teachings of the church. That's it's the other way around. Years ago, I was on an airplane to Boston uh, speaking somewhere up there. And uh, I was sitting next to a lady who, who was had grown up in the Catholic Church and she was beginning to question her faith. And, and her question to me was about eating fish on Friday and how when she was a little girl, they were to eat fish on Friday. And the idea behind that was the tradition of the church that that uh, because Jesus had died on a Friday, we were to fast on Friday. And what fasting meant was no meat and no meat uh, excluded fish, which was cold blooded. So uh, later on in the 1960s, the the the, uh, uh, church teachings changed on that. And her she was wrestling with the with the idea how could how could something that was wrong 10 years ago be right 30 years later or you know how do you well the idea is is it the church over the bible or is it the bible over the church that's why sola scriptura is a foundational principle of the reformation Primary authority of the church councils and traditions as opposed to the primary authority being Scripture itself. We mentioned righteousness infused versus, versus righteousness imputed. Um, and uh, we, we, we've already talked about that. We are saved by Christ's righteousness alone. His merit, not our merit. Because God did not render us savable. He saved us. So... If God is in the process of rendering me savable and I've got to pick up the slack, I'm sunk. And that's where Luther was and began to see, no, no, wait a minute. It's imputed by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not a process. Salvation is completed. We add zero. The cross doesn't begin salvation. The cross completed salvation. Faith is ultimately effectual. In uh, well, let me let me move on. Uh, the basis for salvation is not Christ's work in us. The basis is Christ's work apart from us, in which we partake. Evangelism excludes Catholics. Evangelism includes all. And then the and then this was this was what became a real sticking point: purgatory and then heaven, as opposed to. Uh, when you're absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as Scripture says. So here's the deal. Back to our timeline. Martin Luther was on this journey of understanding the Bible more and more and while still a good Catholic. But at this point in his life, he did three things. First, he went ahead and became a priest. And on May the 2nd, 1507, he said his first mass. He was so nervous he had to stop and then start again. He almost fainted. He was terrified of doing it. The second thing that happened was this massive brain read for the Doctor of Divinity degree. That is an extremely rare degree in um, Europe. In America, 
The Doctor of Divinity is actually an honorary degree that's given to someone. In Europe, it's a degree that's given to, to a, a PhD after they've gotten their doctorate and then have accumulated so much scholarly distinction that they are head and shoulders above all other PhDs. It takes about 15 years. And Luther got that degree. So he, he was, his, his uh, intellect was, was widely uh, recognized. Um, the third thing he did was he made a pilgrimage to Rome where he was to serve there for a brief time. And, and while he was there, I mean, for Luther, okay, he hasn't found the answer to the question of this tormented soul of dealing with his sin, the internal sin, the flesh. He hasn't found an answer for dealing with this in, in um, uh, the practices that he was engaged in in the monastery, in being a priest, uh, in, in his academic studies, although he's continuing to study the scriptures. And that again, that doctrinal chasm is just opening wide in front of him. So when he went to Rome, he thought, OK, now I'll find the true believers. Now I'll finally be in a place of piety and worship and my soul will find its balm. But when he arrived in Rome, he found the opposite of what he expected. He was shocked by the luxury and the lavish lifestyles among the church leaders. He was uh, astonished by the unbelief of his fellow priests. In fact, he, he, he said he saw more immorality around him among the priests than he had ever seen among the peasants of Germany. When he was finishing a mass, saying a mass one day, it was an Italian priest next to him, and Luther was quite slow, apparently, at it. And this gentleman had done seven, and he told him to hurry up, time is money. So uh, one day Luther was, he wrote to his, he wrote, uh, his, his son Paul about this. He was um, going up he, as, as an act of piety while there at Rome. He was ascending the 28 steps of the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate, which had supposedly been brought from Jerusalem in the ninth century to Rome. He was ascending up the 28 steps on his knees. That's what you do to, as an act of piety. And just go ascending at each step on your knees to gain favor with God. And he wrote, he told his son Paul about it. And what he said was, with every step, the words of Romans 117 were ringing in his ears. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. In 1511... At the age of 28, he went to the Wittenberg University to teach, and he stayed there until he died at the age of 62. He completed his academic work for his Doctor of Divinity, and he continued to study the Scriptures. And as he studied the Scriptures, I'm going to read to you what he said. He was immersed in the Word of God, teaching Psalms, Romans, and Galatians, Actually, I've got it up here for you. I'm going to read it to you. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. 
And I had no confidence in my, uh, that my merit would assuage him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn. And to have gone through open doors into paradise, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Can you identify with that? This is his testimony. Luther began to examine all the teachings of the church and comparing them with what the Bible said. He felt that the church came up short. He also realized that the church actually, the church in Scripture is not an organization as much as it is an organism. It's not a place with headquarters in Rome, but is a community of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. So he's looking at the Bible and comparing the teachings of the church, and he's seeing this deep, deeper and deeper disconnect. And then came the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the practice of marketing, selling indulgences had always gone on, gone on but it was the practice of marketing indulgences for uh, building projects uh, in Rome. Uh, one representative, his name is Johann Tetzel, he's very famous because of his interaction with Luther, was appointed to travel throughout Germany to sell indulgences to the common people so that their loved ones would spend less time in purgatory. And apparently this guy was just the, the, you know, the, the million-dollar salesman. He was good at his job, and he preyed on the love for, that people had for their dead family members who would be released from purgatory, quote, as soon as the penny tinkles in the box. And you read his quote here. Uh, his saying was, as soon as a coin in coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's its English translation. But that was the saying that went around. And there may have been sincere Catholic leaders that cringed over this. If so, we don't know about them. Luther was deeply offended. And, and here's what's coming together. You see, are you seeing these things coming together in his mind? It's the study of the scriptures, the corruption that he's seen from Germany. Uh, I'm sorry, from from Germany to Rome and back. And now the selling of indulgences and the agony that he felt as he watched people give their hard-earned money, of which they had precious little, for pieces of paper which they thought were their passports to heaven. An explicit contradiction of the Scriptures. So what Luther wanted to do was to have a debate. He wanted a church-wide debate. He has no thought of starting something outside the church. You understand? He wanted to reform the church from within and to begin an open discussion with the other members of the body of Christ. So on October 31st, 1517, as legend has it, Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door of the Wittenberg church protesting the sale of indulgences. And I, I said, as legend has it, 
Because that story comes not from Luther's own writings about the nailing him to the church door. It comes from his scholarly assistant, Philip Melanchthon. But Philip Melanchthon uh, was a truthful man, had no reason to lie about something that could obviously be verified so easily. So he says Luther nailed them to the church door for a, uh, to have a debate. Why'd they nail them to the church door? I mean, would somebody come up here and nail something to our church door? What, what was that about? Well, the standard way that academics brought an issue to light for discussion was to uh, uh, put a challenge to a debate over that issue on the church door. Why October 31st? Well, because it was all the next day was All Saints Day, November 1st. And this was All Hallows Eve the night before. So he, he, he was trying to get the most attention everybody would the, the town would be packed with people coming in to celebrate uh, the the holiday. And that was uh, the timing was designed to spark the greatest entrance uh, interest. Although also. Also, he not only nailed them, he mailed them. He mailed them to church leaders and scholars throughout Germany and Europe and that's what actually ignited the Reformation. Not that they were nailed, but that they were mailed. Here's what he nailed to the church door. Here's what he mailed out through Europe. 95 Theses. Disputation of Dr. Martin Luther concerning penitence and indulgences. And here's the first, here's the preamble. In the desire and with the purpose of elucidating the truth, a disputation will be held on the underwritten propositions at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, monk of the order of St. Augustine. He therefore asks those who cannot be present and discuss the subject with us orally to do so by letter in their absence in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then what followed were the 95 theses that he said he would debate with anyone, anytime, anywhere. Here are some of them. We must Especially beware of those who say that these pardons, that is indulgences, from the Pope are the inest inestimable gift of God by which man is reconciled to God. Christians should be taught that he who gives to a poor man or lends to a needy man does better than if he bought indulgences. Wrong is done to the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or longer time is spent on indulgences than on the words of the gospel. The true treasure of the church, not money, not buildings, is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. And then there was this one, which was quite famous. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of most holy charity and the of supreme necessity of souls? This being the most just of all reasons, if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of that most fatal thing, money, to be spent on building a cathedral. This being a slight reason. He ended up in the protestation. I, Martin Luther, doctor, order of the monks of Wittenberg, and so forth, desire to testify publicly that certain propositions against pontifical indulgences, as they call them, have been put forth by me. And then he goes on to say that uh, many people will call him a heretic and so forth. But then he adds, but on my part, as I have often done before, so now too I implore, implore all men by the faith of Christ, 
either to point out to me a better way, if such a way has been divinely revealed to any, a little tongue-in-cheek there, or at least to submit their opinions to the judgment of God and of the church. For I am neither so rash as to wish that my sole opinion should be preferred to that of all other men, nor so senseless as to be willing that the word of God should be made to give place to the fables devised by human reason. So that's what was nailed up there. What happened? Nothing. No one accepted the challenge to debate. But the 95 theses had been nailed, and we would say today they went viral. Yeah. They were copied and recopied, translated, spread like wildfire through Germany, but also through Europe within a very few weeks. And this was the spark that ignited the Reformation. Again, Luther never intended to leave the Catholic Church. He was wanting to call the church back to Scripture. What happened over the next months and years? Well, four years later, in 1521, Luther was called to account before uh, the church magistrates and the nobility who had their fingers in church politics in Worms, Germany. Uh, the term diet, D-I-E-T, like our, you know what a diet is, but it's a different way. The term means a formal deliberative assembly. And this was called the Diet of Worms. I know it's an unfortunate name, but it's memorable, isn't it? Uh, there was a formal deliberative assembly called in Worms, Germany, and the emperor, the emperor, Charles, uh, yeah, Charles V presided. And events had escalated to the point where Luther's life was in the balance. He was not called to examine his views. He was not, they weren't calling him in to debate the 95 theses. He was called to recant them, to deny his teaching. Or else be excommunicated and then be executed. There's a lot of history behind the council that examined Luther that we don't have time for. And why he wasn't executed. I'm condensing uh, quite a bit. But the high drama took place on Thursday the 18th of April 1521. Philip Schaff is a well-known church historian. I've got a, like an eight volume, uh, his, eight volume history of the church written by him. And he wrote this, quote, from the inmost depths of his conscience, educated by the study of the word of God, he made in both languages, that is both Latin and German, the memorable declaration which marks an epoch in the history of religious liberty. Well, here's what Luther said at the end of the whole thing. Unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of the scriptures or by clear arguments, since I believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone, it being evident that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me, and my conscience is bound in the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. And they, they threatened him. And the historical, and a, a bit more discussion took place. And I think it was an overnight thing. He was brought back. And then he, the historical consensus is that he uttered in German the concluding sentence, which rings 
through the centuries. And here is what he said. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. By the way, Martin Luther was 34 years old. That's all. But he stood for the word of God. In the next years, over the next years, there was drama after drama. There were great stories, assassination attempts, his marriage to Katie Von Bora, my Katie, his family, his deep friendship with uh, Philip Melanchthon, who uh, was uh, the who Luther called the greatest mind of that century, and he probably was. He lived a very full and a very controversial life, and he died peacefully. If a man of conflict, that was just ongoing conflict, can die peacefully. He died 29 years later at the age of 62. Martin Luther was a deeply flawed man in many ways, as he would be the first to admit. But God used him at this time in history to make an eternal difference. So here we are today, Signal Mountain Bible Church. Protestants, we protest. At the time of the Reformation, there was more of the world in the church than there was the church in the world. Is that true of us today? In the American churches, is there more of the world in the church than the church in the world? In mission? Is more of the world in the church? In Chattanooga, Tennessee? Is there more of the world in the church at Signal Mountain Bible Church? What does sola scriptura mean to Signal Mountain Bible Church? What does it mean to you sitting right here? I'm going to make five closing observations about the nature of Scripture. And the first observation is this. First of all, the importance of Scripture. Most people in today's culture say that the Bible is, you know, it's, it's a guidebook with things in it that you can take or leave. By the way, who's the authority there? Well, it's what I want to take or leave. But they, there's a, a certain respect for the Bible. It's kind of, um, it's a, a therapeutic book. It's God's chicken soup for the soul. Uh, it's, and, and its main message is, be nice. And don't judge anybody. And, uh, it, but it's not authoritative. And everybody has their own interpretation because you can make it say whatever you want it to mean, right? Oh, that's just so wrong-headed. Once Luther focused on Scripture as the source of authority, the Reformation had begun. Let me repeat that. Once Luther focused on Scripture as the source of authority, the Reformation had begun. It was only a matter of time. Jesus Christ said, Thy word is truth, not thy traditions are truth, or thy church is truth. The church is corrected by the word. The word is not to be corrected or twisted by the church. And the Reformation brought the Bible back to the people and everything changed. Secondly, the priority of Scripture. And these are entwined. I can't really separate them uh, uh, into sharp categories. But there's an emphasis here because there's no higher authority for the believer than the written word of God. 
What this means is that you can't read statements in the Bible about salvation through Christ alone. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And say, well, I don't know if that's really true, if God really meant it that way. You can't read statements in the Bible about how to raise your children, about how to treat your wife, about whether um, homosexuality uh, in practice is a sin. You, you can't read statements in the Bible and say, well, that was for then. I, I have a higher authority now, which is me and, and my culture. You, the Bible didn't give you that option. We are to believe in the priority of Scripture. Now, I believe your, your feelings do not determine truth. My feelings do not determine truth. This doesn't mean that the Bible is the only place where truth is found. The heavens declare the glory of God. But it does mean that everything else that we learn about God and his world, every other voice is to be filtered through the lens of his word, which is his direct speaking to us, whether it's church tradition or creeds or science or our own experiences or our emotions. All of those things are to be interpreted in light of Scripture, not the other way around. And they're to be discarded when they conflict with Scripture. Remember where Peter talked about what I have seen with my eyes, what we, I heard with my ears. I was there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he goes on to say, and we have the written word more sure. More sure than what I see, more sure than what I hear. Peter himself saw and heard. Third, the focus of Scripture. The Bible's about God. It's not about me and about my feelings and about how to have a better me and a better life now. We submit our mind and our emotions to the Word. We don't use the Bible to justify what we already believe. It is to correct us. And I hope that our worship service, services here at this church are determined by fidelity to Scripture not marketing techniques to, to, to please anyone. Um, that's, I mean, that's why we filter through the, the, song, the words of the songs that we sing. That's why we don't sing some songs that are popular uh, in Christian circles. Scripture is to focus on, Scripture focuses on God and not on us and what uh, appeals to us, but what appeals to him. Fourth, the power of Scripture. Hebrews 4, 12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word has intrinsic power. When I read it, it reads me. It just reads me right back. I've mentioned this to you before. Have you, have you ever found yourself either maybe in a worship service or reading and, and you're you're in agony over something you're, you're wrestling with something and even if the passage or the sermon has nothing to do with what you're wrestling with god has in, just enfolded you by his spirit through the teaching of the word of god and you know it's going to be okay god's word has intrinsic power to overcome temptation as well, right from the very first. Eve was tempted by Satan. Did she follow God's word? No. She decided what was true for me. And she partook of the fruit and followed her own judgment. And then Adam passively went along with it. 
the last Adam, Jesus, God in the flesh, who could generate scripture with his words instead of generating new scripture when he was facing Adam's temptation, repeatedly said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Showing the path of dealing with temptation, not that he could generate, I mean, not that he couldn't do for himself because he could say, Satan, I am God, and I am now reciting new scripture here, quote. He could do that, but he didn't. He showed us what Adam should have done. He should have said to the serpent, serpent, the Lord says. And he showed us what we're to do as we deal with temptations in our lives. And finally, the sufficiency of scripture. Many things uh, that we could say about the Bible, it's inspiration and inerrancy, it's beauty, it's variety, it's comfort. But the focus of Sola Scriptura is especially on the sufficiency of Scripture. It's everything that we need for life and godliness, Peter says. Theologian John Frame says, Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. So let's make sure we get this. The Bible is God speaking to you. Okay? If you don't want to... It's not books about the Bible. As nice as those may be. It's the Bible. If you don't want to read the Bible, then you don't want communion with God. If you put the Bible aside, then you're putting God aside. How else would God look at that? So, that's why Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, just the night before he went to the cross, when he was praying for us, for all of them, he said, who will believe on me through their word, when he was praying for us, said, sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth father we thank you for your word thank you for the opportunity to study it thank you for the faithful witness of many people who are flawed as we are but who stood for truth and lord i pray that we will find that we love you enough not only that we would be willing to die for you but that we would also be willing to live for you In Jesus' name we pray, amen.